Welcome to the Essay for FAs podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest of financial advisors and active investors, including retirement planning, asset allocation, and the economy. I'm your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today it is my distinct pleasure to welcome as our guest the person I regard as the most important contemporary thinker on retirement topics, York University professor Moshe Molesky. We will talk about his important new book, hot off the press, called Longevity Insurance for a Biological Age, in just a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, thanks for waiting. If listeners will indulge me for a moment, I would like to say by way of introduction that what distinguishes our guest from other authorities in academia is that he is not only smart and knowledgeable as learned people usually are. What is unique about Moshe is that he brings rare insight. And that novelty we find, Moshe, in your new book, When people talk about retirement, they're usually focused on their so-called number, how much they've saved or need to save. You talk about another number that is critical to retirement and yet one that is measured completely incorrectly. I'll quote from your book. What if the number of years planet Earth has circled the sun with you as a passenger is the wrong metric? End quote. Moshe, could you elaborate on this? Yes, uh, and thank you very much for this opportunity, Gil. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think that age, the way we currently use the term, is misspecified. So when we talk about someone's age as they get closer to retirement, we focus on something called chronological age, which is the number of years that have passed since you were born. And uh, obviously, that's a great metric for certain things, you know, whether you should be allowed to drive, whether you should be allowed to drink or smoke and so on and so forth. But when it comes to retirement planning, age is being used as a proxy for how long you're going to live, how long you're going to spend in retirement, how many more years you need to worry about. And chronological age just isn't built for that. And that's where I think biological age, which is a more accurate assessment of your longevity, uh, should be the future of retirement planning. Hmm. Could you share an anecdote you tell in your book as to why the longevity gap that annuities are meant to bridge became personally significant to you? Yeah. So, you know, in, in I, I've experienced a lot of longevity uncertainty or longevity risk in my personal life. As I noted in the book, my uh, dad, my father, uh, rest in peace, barely made it to the age of 50. My grandfather made it to his mid-90s. And uh, he, you know, he lived for many, many more years after my dad. And, uh, you know, that to me brought home the notion of uh, longevity risk and longevity uncertainty. I find that too many people plan for a deterministic horizon. You know, they're not quite sure what it is, but they think it's deterministic. And me, from a very young age, I realized, no, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty about how long people are going to live. And, And the more accurate we can get and the more accuracy we can get in that, the easier retirement planning will become. So one's personal wealth management strategy should be calibrated to biological age rather than chronological age? 
You know, I think so. I mean, to me, biological age in the book is the beginning of a research agenda as opposed to the end or a summary. I, I think that once you come to recognize that your biological age is very different from your chronological age, uh, and that that gap could be 15, possibly 20 years, it has a number of implications. But the first thing is the realization that chronological age doesn't really mean very much. Uh, you know, when you're 20, 25, 30, you know, chronological age is pretty much any, you know, everything you've got. How old or young can you be? You know, when was the last time you saw a 20-year-old and said, oh, my goodness, you look 15 years younger than your age? <laughs> that doesn't make sense at the age of 20. But when you get to the age of 60 and you look at someone, there's sometimes you look at them and you say, wow, you know, she doesn't look a day over 40. And other times you look at someone who's 60 and you say, my goodness, you know, he, he looks 80. It's not that he looks 80 or she looks 40. They are 80 and they are 40. Their biological age is actually very far from their chronological age. And it's not that they're fooling you into thinking that that's what it is. That's chemically, biologically, what their actual mortality rates look like. They're going to be living for much longer. So once we come to the realization that that chronological age isn't a good metric for how long you're going to be living, and more importantly, the gap between biological age and chronological age is quite large at the middle of life, around the age of retirement, there are many, many implications. Asset allocation should depend on biological age. The strategy of whether you should be buying annuities or longevity insurance, long-term care, your work strategy, all, all of it keys off of biological age. So, you know, we can go through each one of those independently, but there are a number of implications to this biological age concept. Right. The biology behind this is quite fascinating, and you go through it very, uh, very nicely, readably in your book. But I want to, for this audience, I think I need to focus on the finances. So, first of all, maybe we'll start with a historical anecdote. You raise this. You have a whole chapter on this. About exactly 101 years ago, America was beset by a public health disaster. Can you tell us about the effects of the Spanish flu and what that tells us about the economic value of life insurance? Right. So the, when I was writing the book, we were at the 100-year anniversary of the Spanish flu, which killed about you know 700,000 Americans, uh, you know about 30 or 40,000 Canadians, killed more people than World War One did, both in North America as well as around the world. Uh, you know, some people estimate it was 50 million, possibly even double that. So the reason the Spanish flu to me is is interesting. It's a tragedy. People have called it the worst, uh, you know, longevity shock in the 20th century is simply because of the fact that the mortality rates were much, much higher for the young versus the old. And that was very surprising. You know, if you were older, you know, I'm talking 60, 70, uh, 80, uh, you got the Spanish flu, you know, you were ill for a couple of weeks, you recovered for the most part. But if you were in your 20s and 30s and 40s, you became ill, you didn't recover. And if you actually take a look at the chart of mortality rates, uh, there's a spike around the age of 28 or so. Uh, and I mean a spike. Spike. I mean that the mortality rate of a 28-year-old was equal to the mortality rate of a 70 or 75-year-old. The life expectancy of a 28-year-old was the same as the life expectancy of a 75-year-old, which means that suddenly chronological age of 28 didn't really mean very much. Your biological age was very close to 70. So, you know, once people became aware of that, you know, life insurance developed this sort of a, a, a legitimate, an honorable way of hedging that uncertainty because families would be taken care of. My, my point in, in that chapter and the Spanish flu and the history around it is more to, to illustrate the fact that longevity risk 
should become as salient as mortality risk. And what I mean by that is nobody doubts the importance of having life insurance. It's a given. Every financial advisor at the very, very beginning of the conversation around financial planning probably already says, do you have some life insurance? Does the family have life insurance? Do you have something for more? It's it's just taken for granted. Nobody even probes or or questions. Nobody in their right mind would say, you know, you should self-insure life insurance. No, you need to protect the family. It's because of things like, you know, the flu 100 years ago and, and subsequent episodes where people realize life is fragile. We need protection. My point with this is I'm just trying to make the argument that I think longevity risk has to be made as salient as mortality risk is. And that, that's sort of my point here with biological age. I think it'll do that. Tell us about the annuity products that you yourself bought as an illustration of the importance of longevity protection. Yes, I, I think it was about two or three years ago, right before the uh, Super Bowl, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal where I talked about the fact that I had purchased an insurance product that was a bet, a bet of sorts. It was a bet that I was going to live to 80 as opposed to a bet that I think it was Seattle that was favorite to win the Super Bowl at the time. And the argument that I made was that I think that people need to purchase the same type of insurance against you know, car insurance, home insurance, life insurance. They need to do something similar with longevity insurance. So I went out and I purchased a deferred income annuity is what it's called here. And it was a bizarre type of product because I at the time was you know in my mid-40s and I was buying something that would give me absolutely nothing unless I survived to the age of 80. And there was no cash value. There's no death benefit. There's no surrender value. But the only thing that the company was promising me was that if I got to the age of 80, they'd give me income for the rest of my life. It would be an inflation adjusted income. It would grow over time, a cost of living adjustment. And they gave me the option to continue contributing to that. So this is a product that you can add to every year, but there's absolutely no liquidity and there's certainly no cash value. So anyway, I had purchased this thing and I wrote an article about it. And what was interesting is that, you know, when you write something for the journal, you can actually see comments online of people reading the article and, you know, do they agree? Do they disagree? What struck me after writing this article is that every single one of the comments, every single one of the comments after I described this basically said that I'm an idiot. The author's an idiot. This is the biggest waste of money. And they were very technical about it. I mean, this is a Wall Street Journal reader. Why did you do this? You should have bought an ETF, and the ETF would grow over time to provide more. That's ridiculous. Why would you rely on an insurance company? Are you really, you'll never make it to 80. What are the odds you'll make it to 80? And just this went on. Not one person read this and said, you know what? I buy this. So my takeaway from it is that deferred income annuities and longevity insurance have a long way to go before they become you know, recognized as legitimate as life insurance and car insurance and home insurance. So I, I think one of the ways to do that is to start telling people, you are much younger than your chronological age. Oh, oh, you think you're 50? No, you're 38. And you need some insurance against being younger than your chronological age. Buy some insurance because tomorrow you might get younger. What does that mean? I might get younger. Your biological age might go. And I think that's the way to wake people up into saying, you know what? Maybe I should start thinking about this. I I don't think that pictures of old people in newspapers are going to galvanize people to buy annuities and longevity insurance. I don't think it makes it salient. See her? She made it to 117. You might make it to 117. You better have an annuity. It just, I, I, I don't know. I look at it. I laugh. It's like, what? Me? 117? No, that'll never happen. I don't need this. What's my internal rate of return? Whereas if you tell someone, we just took a test, you're 12 years younger than your age. Oh, okay. Maybe I do need some protection. Well, you really anticipated my next question and you half answered it. 
but I feel I need to ask it anyway because if I know my audience, they're they're not dissimilar from the readers of the Wall Street Journal. I believe there will be many who will listen to this very skeptically and think that you are wasting your money. They're wa- you're wasting your money because you could get a higher return on your investment by simply taking that same amount of money you put into a deferred income annuity and buying some stocks with it and just waiting. And then, then you, you, you have no risk of losing your bet with the insurance company. You get to keep whatever return you have. And the reason why I'm asking you this, even though, as I mentioned, you did address it partially, is because I'm really not, what I'm really looking for is for you to explain to listeners the value of insurance, to make that distinction between an investment and insurance. That's, I think, the key point here. So, you know, obviously it's difficult with both hands tied around behind my back. I have my hands tied behind my back when I don't have a blackboard or a whiteboard or a piece of paper to illustrate concepts. So, you know, you, when you take away that freedom, you're limited in terms of how you can explain things. But basically it comes down to pooling. Uh, everybody understands the value of pooling when it comes to life insurance. You know, how do they have a million dollars to give to the widow? You know, he only paid premiums for three years. Where did the million dollars come from? It's not the insurance company that gave the million dollars. It's everybody else that didn't die and all of their premiums are added together. And that goes and pays for the widow's uh, death benefit. And I think that the same concept has to be explained pooling on the other side, which is when people live a long time, they end up being subsidized by those who don't. And when somebody says to me, you could have bought an ETF or an index fund that would have paid out at the age of 80, my answer is, I've got some of those too. I'm not telling you to put all of your money in these things. I also have S&P 500 index funds and MSCI ETFs that'll pay out no matter what age I get to. I'm not putting all of my eggs in that basket. All I'm saying is I need some insurance just in case I get there and the market's aren't performing well because there is no guarantee that markets will be at some astronomical level in 30 years from now. It's no different than buying car insurance or home insurance or life insurance. What is the internal rate of return on your term life insurance? The IRR is negative. Why do you buy life insurance? Well, because I got to protect the family, but the IRR is negative. We could have done better by buying an index fund or we could have done better using some smart beta fund. And my response is, you can't think that way when it comes to insurance. You're just thinking that this isn't a risk and it doesn't require insurance. That's where our disagreement is, not whether or not IRR is the right metric for insurance. We all understand it isn't. So I I think the biggest misconception is that people somehow think that that's it. That's my retirement strategy, buy these deferred income annuities. No, it's it's a cocktail. Retirement is about a portfolio of things, and that just happens to be one of them, and I think it's an important one. And when you consider the fact that a lot of people reach retirement and they don't have the assets that they need to support their standard of living, I think it's important. I also like the idea of transforming the problem from one with a random horizon to a problem where, look, I've got to get to 80 because after that I'm living on the insurance company's dime. There's a certain comfort that comes from it as well. All I have to do is reach 80. I I sometimes think that it's an incentive. You know, I got to get to 80. I got to get to 80 because then that income's going to turn on. So it's become a running joke in our house. You know, daddy, 29 more years and you'll get some money from that thing. Okay. Well, well, um, speaking of portfolios, you have a rather bracing discussion about this concept of biological age, true age, not of oneself, as we've been discussing, but of one's portfolio. We may be harboring the illusion that it will last as long as we do, but the calculations that go into it may not be correct, as as you've said. 
So how do we keep our portfolio from aging and from an asset allocation point of view? Yeah, so, you know, part of the book is is sort of advocate this idea that longevity is equally applicable to money as it is to humans. So, you know, I spend the first three quarters of the book talking about longevity of humans and how we, you know, can more accurately forecast it using biological age. And then I transition into the notion of your portfolio having an age as well. The longevity of your money can be anywhere from 10 to 50 years, possibly infinite if you're not drawing anything out. And the idea here is to align longevity of portfolios with your own longevity. So the big picture here is that once you know your longevity is 30 years, you probably will live for 30 years. Then the question is, how long will your money last? And you run this longevity analysis, and it tells you, no, your portfolio's longevity is only 10 years, and your personal longevity is 30 years. Well, there's a 20-year gap there. What are we going to do about it? So it's alerting people to the fact that portfolios have longevity as well. I think sort of that's what I was trying to do in that chapter. Okay. And we should also address not just personal finance, but public finance. From a, from a public policy standpoint, using biological age instead of chronological age has enormous implications in terms of, say, who gets to claim social security and when. What would you say about that? Yeah. So to be honest, that's the thing I'm most excited about. So, you know, I, you know, I, I certainly like the idea of using biological age to help people sell annuities. You know, that, that's fine. But what I'm really passionate about is I think it's time that we change laws so that Social Security, pensions, retirement age is geared towards biological age, not chronological age. There's growing evidence around the world of what actuaries would call mortality heterogeneity, which is just a fancy term for people live completely different lifespans depending on genetic predisposition, depending on income, depending on wealth, depending on where they live. Why do we have chronological age-based retirement systems when we have completely different biological ages? There's evidence to suggest that, you know, in the U.S., the gap between, between biological age and chronological age can be 20 years, and yet everybody has to wait to 67 full retirement age to get their uh, Social Security benefits. I, you know, if you're 50 years old chronologically, and these tests are telling you that biologically you're 70, you should be able to go to the Social Security Administration and say, I have a note from my doctor, I'm 70. And when they say to you, no, your birth certificate says 50, I say, that's not what matters, the number of times I circled the sun. It's my biological age that matters. I think that around the world, uh, this notion that we should have a uniform retirement age and it should move up for everyone is unfair, patently unfair to people whose biological age is much, much higher. And in some sense, on the flip side, if your biological age is much lower, you should not be entitled to walk into the pension office and say, well, I am now 65. Give me my pension. Your your biological age is 40. You want us to pay you for the next 50 years? Yep, I'm 65 now. No, but that wasn't the point here. The point was to pay people for the rest of their lives under a reasonable lifespan. So I really do hope that this chips away at the notion of chronological age being the, the, the age that we use to determine all these benefits and entitlements. I think it's got to go to biological age. 
Of course, with the proviso that at some point, this has to be standardized. You talk to two or three researchers, they'll each have their own metric of biological A's. There are some people that are even skeptical of it. They'll say, oh, no, no, I don't think telomeres are the way to do it or DNA methylation. No, 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 I don't think it should. Fine, there's still disagreement on how to measure it. But sooner or later, a consensus emerges and everybody understands this is my BH, this is my CH. And the next question is, why should you be entitled to retire at a chronological age when really what this is about is longevity better measured by biological age? So I think to me, that's the most important takeaway from the book. Well, that is one of many fascinating insights readers will get when they read your book. One thing I can personally assure listeners, and I speak as a professional writer, is that no other academic I am aware of writes as pleasantly as Moshe Malevsky. Seeking Alpha listeners, Moshe Malevsky's new book, Longevity Insurance for a Biological Age, is short and sweet, brimming with insight, and a pleasure to read. Thank you, Moshe, for joining us in this podcast. Oh, thank you, Gil. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests, and make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich, and our podcast was sponsored by Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.